0: Dan Hardy, welcome to the Trigonometry Show.
1: Yes, <laughs> mate. Cheers.
0: I think, um, I mean, we. I visited you a while ago, and I think then in the offices we said we needed to do a podcast or something, and it's only taken us, what, a couple of years, I think, years. to actually get around to it. Yeah. Mm. So I would like to think that most people in New Zealand anyway have heard of uh, yourself or at least Hardy Engineering, and... Um, I thought we'll get a bit of a history of Hardy's as well, but then, you know, as these things are, let's get a bit of a history of yourself.
1: You know, business is in my blood. Um, You know, I come from a long line of uh, military men and self-made men. I just happen to be um, both. So growing up, uh, my mum and dad had their own business. Um, So got a a bit of an understanding of what it was like to operate whilst having that that extra responsibility on your shoulders, i.e. having to take care of and how you should take care of um, you know your staff, and, and you know the guys that you're working with, and um, how to build a good company culture, so that everyone wants to be there, and all that sort of stuff. So that that's how that sort of all began for me. Very much a a family indoctrination into mm. the business. Um, well,
0: I, I mean, I, I've just been in and out of a role which hammered home the notion of um, company culture to me, and it was. I do remember visiting you guys that you went a walk around the warehouse on the, the factory fabrication plant, whatever you'd like to call it. But there was heaps of smiling faces, heaps of people obviously really into what they're doing, heaps of other projects. And there was just lots of stuff going on, you know, it was, mm-hmm. um, yeah, from my very brief visit, it was a pretty cool place to, to, to visit. And it was a pretty cool vibe that was going on as well. And it, it seems to come through you know, obviously, guys who listen to the show will know Ian because he's been on to quite a few of our shows, um, the live shows as well. So, yeah, it's all part of that that family culture, you know? So
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah culture is the seed of everything. Um, mm. You know, we, it's something that we take really, you know, incredibly seriously. It is the seed of everything. You know, without um, very, very strong and very good culture, uh, the company just, you know, the company won't survive. Um, and the other how, how is
0: how is that something you cultivate then? Because it's the sort of thing people talk about a lot. Of you know, the the culture is important, and I realised very quickly the role I was in um, previously. My job was going to be try and change the culture very quickly, and couldn't do it. It was just no. It, I had months, you know, and I even said to the the management in the end, it's like you need well, one, you need to have started this from the day one with this culture in mind, rather than going oh now it's broken, we need to fix it, but Uh, yeah where where does it start obviously yourself but how how do you inject that into the company
1: it's a it's a real tough one so culture is something that cannot be growing quickly and it's something that is really really difficult to repair like if you've got poor culture or you do something to damage your culture it's very very hard to repair it so you had a job wherein you needed to um rebuild the culture or improve the culture and improve the morale in a short time frame you're you're doomed right from the outset you know well you've got years
0: of getting a tour where it was and then you're like okay now how do we unwrap how do you unwind this with complications of seniors not senior management not actually wanting to change it's the a lot of people when they say culture needs to change what they mean is our employees need to change it's not actually the culture needs to change because we don't like the way they're doing it so they need to change and that's what they actually mean by it rather than going well if culture needs to change that includes us at the the management level as well
1: yeah and you find with good culture the staff will change themselves so if you've got good culture you bring some you bring the wrong person in and uh you it's you don't you don't need to get rid of a bad egg your guys will be like no we're not having this and they will get get rid of them as and we've had that happen ourselves. But going back to your question, what we do, um, you know, we 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 push and live by our values and our purpose and our vision really hugely. Um so we're always emphasizing what it is that we stand for so that everyone has a really good clear understanding of what we're all about and so that we're unified and we all operate the same song sheet and then it gives the ability for any member of staff any of our guys to hold anyone else accountable and you'll hear mm-hmm. that if you spend um, more time on our floor wandering around you'll be in a conversation with someone I've had I've had guys say it to me you know my guys say it to me you know we're going to do this such and such and I'm going to do this here and I'm going to take a cut through here it's going to take an extra five minutes to run this program but you know no compromise so that's how we're going to run it you know so having really clear consistent messages a very clear vision and very clear company values that's sort of your foundational point but then all that sort of good stuff that that a lot of companies do on top of that is still really important as well. You know, you've got your team events, you've got your mid-year Christmas function, you've got your Christmas function, you know. We do a lot with our, um, a lot lot of shooting with Mm -hmm. our guys as well. Obviously, in the nature of what we do, we've got a lot of passionate hunters and shooters, but then we've got people who aren't in a role that require to have a, a passion for hunting and shooting. So it's really cool for the guys who are right into it, to take them and go this is how you dial a gun in this is how you shoot that chunk of steel down there at 600 and we've had we've, we've got some of our staff that have got you know will have had no interest in firearms they're there mm. to do their particular job like addicted to ring and steel yeah like, you know it's so and it's so it, good it's, uh,
0: the the shooting community is one of those because in some ways i'm I, well, actually not so relatively new anymore but in some ways i still kind of see it looking from the outside in I didn't necessarily grow up with a firearm culture um but yeah you get guys who are keen and now I suppose as much as it's me as well taking guys to the range who are keen to just show Mm. this this info and yeah you've had people come out who are like well not necessarily didn't think I was going to be so much into it just needed to get the gun zeroed or whatever it was but yeah you've got suddenly you've given somebody the bug um and I, I imagine a lot of uh, I don't know, I, I'm just trying to think of the words. A lot of sports, people who are keen about their sport are going to be like that, but the shooting side of it also actually seems to be rather accessible because it's not like you need to be super tall or super fit or super anything to get into shooting. It's something that's quite a technical thing that if people follow what you are showing can very quickly get a proficiency in it, get results and then go, right, that now, now I see. Now I want to improve more, but now I'm, I'm kind of into it.
1: yeah. Yeah, you, you did right. And, you know, when we, if we take someone <clears throat> who hasn't done a lot of shooting or has no interest or whatever up to the range, we're there with all of our gear, sort of the Flash Harry of everything. And it's it's 100% cheating as compared to how, you know, you or me started <laughs> back in the day. I grab a gun and go, how far's that, mate? I reckon it's 300. i aim at the top of the plate. You know, there's none of that. We've got all the gear. And, yeah. and so you've got people who've, who've said, look, oh, I've shot a, I shot a slug gun when I was 12 hitting a ringing 12-inch gong at 600 metres. Um, hell of a feeling for these people, you know. Well,
0: it accelerates it quick. It, it, I used to have mm-hmm. a similar thing in the pro audio industry as guys would come in who basically had the cash to, to, to get a good system. And there's no doubt, a good system is better than a cheaper system. There's not... Mm-hmm. There's no... There's advantages. But sometimes you almost... Uh, you almost felt like, oh, I almost wish I could show you some of the cheaper stuff or some of the the where we started, so you can truly appreciate what's what you're actually getting yourself into. Where sometimes it's sometimes it's awesome they can get straight into it, but they don't necessarily understand the level that they're getting into it. On the flip side, sometimes if they're for hunting or whatever it is, their purpose is hunting. Their purpose is not necessarily the 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 gun necessarily is what it achieves for them so they are maybe not so worried about it but yeah it's it's sometimes people we we forget how fast stuff has come and how not easy but how improved things are compared to you know
1: yeah and then you've got to give credit where credit's due as well like you know we've taken some guys that have literally okay i've got my firearms license i want my first rifle but they've shown up with us because they've done their research yeah they've phone calls to people they've spoken to a mate who spoke to a mate they've tested a piece of gear that you know that they've heard through the great mind this guy's got and you know they've made the decision that they want to enter the market at that top end you know Mm. and we've 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 outfit guys with the the best of the best as their first gun yeah Uh, yeah yeah. because they've spent the time and they know what they want so yeah it's it's yeah yeah i I know how i'd do it if i could as all (laughs) of us
0: would yes but it's um what's also interesting i guess for you guys as well because for people in new zealand and because you are also in new zealand you can lock down limitations or obviously but you can actually take people through that process as well with Mm -hmm. your equipment it's not um just a case of buying this high end expensive rifle from overseas you actually get it set up and you can talk to the designers and the manufacturers and it's all part of, um, yeah, it's just a little bit more inclusive rather than just, you know, it being a a dollar figure that you pay and take it off a shelf and good luck. Mm. Um, and to be fair, I end up with a lot of those guys coming to me to get their rifle set up because they've spent all this money in a, a store somewhere, but that's only part of it as well. You still need that knowledge.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we and we it does happen more and more these days. Um, like mm. you say, with the um, New Zealand consumer, that they want the whole package. They want, you know, rifle, optic, ammo, so and so on, so on. And then they want, look, I want four hours on the range yep. with Ian. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, I remarkably- mean, if it from someone, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be putting Ian in the ring. That's for sure. <laughs> like, you know. So yeah, he does a bit of that. And um, yeah, you get a lot of smiles, you know. When guys buy good gear and they get four hours on the range with the end, yeah, they they feel pretty dangerous at the end of it, you know, some real confidence, which is awesome to see.
0: Well, that's that thing. The time is is valuable concept. So people are changing, they're realizing that if you pay for that four hours of time, it actually saves you a lot of grief and a lot of headaches. So you end up in a strange way, spending less than you might have actually invested up front because you're not going to spend all that time at the range trying to figure out how to zero your rifle, set your rifle up. You get get it condensed and kind of delivered to you as a bit of a jumpstart.
1: Yeah. Training's always been a real funny topic, especially in the gun world, Mm. in New Zealand in particular, where people are like, oh, $1,500 to do a two-day shooting course, that's outlandish, you know, Um, where in actual fact, just like you have just said, it's incredibly cost-effective investment. You know, a two-day training course, man, oh, man, you come out of yeah. that, you know. Yeah, very, well, very I,
0: I think that's the thing, but then, like, you then compare it to any other form of training, even online training now, like for video editing or audio editing or anything, and you're going to pay for it. So it's mm-hmm. almost odd. Well, I understand some of the reason, but it's a bit odd that people are hesitant to pay for this because especially for long range side of things that is a very technical knowledge base and as I remind guys when they turn up or do stuff it's like we're not actually born knowing how to shoot a gun there's this misconception that every man knows how to shoot a gun because it's I'm a man I must know how to shoot a gun it's like no it's like any skill and there's there's, there's basic fundamentals and then there's tips and tricks and that's only done through being taught it hell of a lot of practice and experimentation by yourself but it's yeah so it's good it's changing though i mean i think people mm. are just aware that it's it's uh, spending money on the gear you've got to be spending money on on some form of training to actually know how to use it otherwise you're going to be bumbling away with it for a long time
1: mm. and just to highlight what you were saying there about not being born knowing how to do it if you look i mean just again like i said to highlight your point if you look back and mm. history and from a design perspective at firearms, they're borderline unfireable, the design. Yep. Like, to actually expect you to be able to hold it and shoot it accurately is completely ridiculous. But it's only, and it's probably only more in the more recent years where you're getting a lot more firearms released with a more vertical pistol grip. That, you know, And so it's not that long ago that firearms, in my opinion, were being designed completely Incorrect for the human shape.
0: Well, it's a it's a this sort of feedback design loop of the way we're shooting and the purpose we're shooting feeds into the designs we need to it, which then kind of allows us to shoot it in a slightly better way again. And this this loop of and the pistol grips are a, a good example. I mean, it used to be the case, is like, you know, oh you hold it, you know, it's offhand shooting. Well, we're not offhand shooting, so we don't really need it in that way. But on the flip side now, even if I'm offhand shooting, I'm so used to my pistol style, more vertical grip. I don't really care if I'm shooting offhand or flat. My shooting style has adapted that I would just prefer that all the time anyway, Mm. you know? Um, But yeah, I mean, it's and it, it continues to do so. I think what's cool now is though that loop... Maybe it's social media or just communications that that loop is almost speeding up, that it doesn't take so many iterations of something to actually change. And guys aren't holding on to, oh, well, that's where, how my grandfather's gun was designed. Therefore, that's what I must shoot. It's like, well, no, let's just get whatever's yeah. optimized for whatever it is we <laughs> want. You
1: know? Yeah, because there was a lot of that. Oh, it was good enough for my grandfather. It's good enough for me. Well, yeah, uh, technically, uh, yes, uh, but it yeah. can be better.
0: It can be better, and but but again, we we say it a lot on the, the the show as well as we talk about a lot of this technical stuff, and then go. But you got to also be always keep your intent very clear as to what you're trying to achieve, because otherwise you end up with something that is optimized for maybe what you're not even going to do it for. We're uh, going to use it for, and you have a good example with the super lightweight rifles versus rifle super heavy rifles and all the lines in between and chassis and stocks. It's like well be very clear what you want to use it for, but don't design the whole system around one of the extreme use cases. You know, the guys build a 1K gun when they really need a bush hunter, but I might need to take that long range shot at some point. So they design the entire system around it, which makes it less than optimal for where most of the time they're going to be using it. You know?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, so when we speak to um, guys about building a rifle, like, you know, a lot of the time it's like, Hey, look, I want to build a, a custom-built rifle, or whatever. That that fundamental question, that and it's, it falls on us to make sure that we ask the right questions. Like, what do you want it for? What are you trying to achieve? You know, and, and guys, listen to this show will, that have dealt with me will, will, will recall me asking them this question: What do you what do you want to do? Um, because you know we've been around for a while, and you know we've been there and done that. You know, we do have some good ideas, and we can help. But if you don't actually let us know what it is you're trying to achieve, yeah. how we do advise and send you down a rabbit hole.
0: Well, um, it's interesting what you say about knowing the right questions to ask as well, yeah. because that's part of it. Because sometimes I think that's part of the sales process is being able to guide the people along that process. You know, I was taught it's like you're less of a seller and more of an assistant buyer. That's the idea of getting... On the same side as the person wanting that product and going, all right, well, what is it you want to use it for? Where are you going to use it? How do you think you're going to use? It? Are you really going to do this? Have you done this? Have you done this? And oh, have you thought of this? And and yeah, you need to know the product and you also need to know the usage cases for it so you can actually guide people mm-hmm. down that path of figuring out what it is that they need. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's, we we get it all the time where it's like, oh, I want to build a, I want to build a custom rifle. I want to build a Simmel rimback. You know, it's like yep, absolutely. We can say this length, this twist rate. Thanks, you know, thanks for buying a rifle from us. See you later. But um, in a lot of instances, it's like, why? What's with the single rim What do you want to do? Oh, my mate's got one. He said it's good. Yeah. But I want to shoot deer out to thirty yards in tight scrub. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yeah. But so. Be- so,
0: so- but you're, you're right there. It's, the, it's really tempting to go on that path of, I want to see them. Oh, well, here's all your technical information and go down that path without stopping and going, time, let's go back a couple of steps yeah. and ask how you got that far. Um, and it's the same thing. Yeah, guys, well, I get a lot of emails because of a particular article on the website regarding um, twist rates for for barrels, you know, from all over the place. And it's like, all right, Tyho, let's go back for a step. Do you you're trying to put the heaviest pill you can down that barrel? Do you need the heaviest pill? What are you actually doing? Where are you? What projectiles can you get? Because there's no point in me suggesting anything that you're gonna have trouble getting supply of anyway. So what's you know, so and normally I've I mean I've had I had a great example with a guy with a kestrel I did myself out of a sale of a kestrel because the guy was basically bush hunting. i it's like, well what do we what do we need to Honestly, what do we need a Kestrel for? And we talked it through, and in the end, it was a rangefinder is actually what he needed more than a Kestrel.
1: Yeah. So, so. All good stuff.
0: <clears throat> so, so you've you sort of had you you knew I suppose always that you'd wanted your own business. Yeah. Because um, that was just the upbringing that that you were sort of surrounded by. The was the army then a. A way of learning a particular skill set was a diversion. Like it was, it was, was,
1: yeah, yeah, it was sort of
0: diversion is not the right word. I'm not meaning the word diversion, but it's (laughs) yeah. How if yeah, how did that come about? And was that intentional? To then, did you know? Did you already have the image of Hardy's in your mind before you went into the military?
1: Yeah, to a degree, I did. But you've got to understand, back then, the idea of having a a gunmaking company in New Zealand, yeah, employing fifteen guys and exporting around the world—that was ridiculous. Nothing like that had really been done before. Um, a gunsmith was an old retired dude who hung out in his garage and would put a set of iron sights. If you broke your twenty-two, you know, put them back on. That's that's what we all had in our minds, and what my parents had in their mind whenever I discussed gunsmithing. Yeah. So how it was how it all came about, and and I remember this very clearly, I was 15 years old when I realized I was effectively unemployable. By that I mean I'd I'd, I'd seen what it was like to live on the to be uh, an employer rather than an employee. And I made my mind up that that's that's the direction I wanted to go on. I wanted the responsibility. I wanted to build culture. I wanted to uh, have this uh, team of people that I work with where we have the flexibility to design and do what we wanted. And I'd seen the amazing work that my mum and my dad had done with their Um, team and how much respect their team had for them and how much it was a really tight family environment. And that's, that's what I wanted. So, and, and, and in line with that, I've always been from a very early age fascinated with engineering from the engineering perspective. I've always been tinkering. I wouldn't say designing things that's probably a bit, uh, bit cheeky, but um, you know, always been tinkering and, and joining things together and um what what's that and how does that work? And let's take this thing apart. Taking things apart that I really shouldn't have been taking apart. <laughs> um at a, at a young age, you know, a set of screwdrivers for Christmas was just that was a terrible idea because I was into <laughs> it, you know. Um, yeah. And I've got friends and family that'll attest to that. So always been a very mechanically minded person. So going through school seeing this business culture and this, this, this self-employed sort of um, business scenario, going through school, pushing myself heavily toward an engineering career. At that point, um, so it seemed fairly logical that the path I was going to take was to run an engineering company. And I made it, I knew right from when I was 15 years old that that's what I was going to do. I was going to run an engineering company. The firearm side of the house hadn't actually turned up. Sure. And then it was one of my fr- uh, one of my brother's friends, he joined the army, and he came back from East Timor and I caught up with him. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And he'd been doing this, that, and the other. And just talking to him about the army and, and that and what, what his experiences and what he'd been up to. And he was like, you know, if you – because, like, you know, I was a boy, so actually army and stuff like that, shooting yeah. things is cool. Um, so then he said, you can actually join your passions together. You like your engineering, you've got this interest growing for hunting and guns, because I did a bit of hunting with him and I did a bit of hunting with my uncle and then eventually got my firearms licence. Do the the two together. So I was like, righto, let's have a look at this. So this was at the same time where I'd actually just been offered some full-time apprenticeships in the the Taranaki region where I was uh, born. Um, Declined them and then joined the army much to my... Families. Oh, right. well, that, was going to
0: be, that was going to be another question: whether, whether you're from a family military or not. So that sort of, a, uh, yeah, military yeah. family. And that kind of answers that question.
1: So my, on my uncle's side, he he was a naval man, and my granddad was navy, and my uh, papa was army. So there was plenty of army okay. around. Yeah. yeah. My mum, not my mum or my dad, they weren't military. So yeah. Uh, Uh, But they'd been surrounded by it. So when I said, look, effectively it came down, they were like, oh, well, one of the bloody children are going to end up in there, weren't they? So that was kind of the the argument. So I took my engineering um, work that I did um, because I started a a pre-apprenticeship program and completed that. Just about to be pushed into the big wide world, and then did an adjustment and joined the army. Took the engineering side, put it into the into the um, trade of an armourer for the army. And armourer is your 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 job is to um, fix, maintain, however you want to skin it, um, the arms side of the army. So that's everything from small arms through to lav cannon artillery. Sniper rifle, you know, pistol, um, all sorts of grenade and rocket launcher type pieces of equipment. So the full spectrum. What you see is we 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 got our dirty mitts on it. Um, so I did that for six years, which was that was my entirety of my working for the military whilst in the military, mm-hmm. and um, it was right from when I when I joined the fascination for suppressors came along at about that time um, because that back then, you know, it was all very much a bit of magic. How do you, how do you get this, you know, this huge amount of energy, huge amount of energy and reduce the noise? Um, there was, there was nothing online, nothing online. You know, you could find very little um, about how they worked and people were playing that game extremely close to their chest. Yeah. Um, so naturally, Incredibly fascinated by. It. So, because I had this engineering background, <coughs> and and I was growing the firearms, then growing the firearms knowledge, um, I was lending my hand to making bits and pieces whilst on the, in the defence force, prototyping and bits and pieces like that. So that was heaps of fun, you know, like literally just coming up with whatever the weird and the wonderfuls. Um, but yeah, so I did my I did my six years and. You know said to said to my parents look I'm gonna I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna start my engineering company and they're like yep you know that's all sounds about like what you're talking about don't guess, it. yeah and I said but I'm gonna do it in with guns <laughs> and of course that was um yeah that was that was all a bit um like there is no money here. there is mm. no money there there's nothing in it yeah you can't survive doing that you know so on so on and, and which was which was right to a degree, you know. It certainly wasn't an easy well, industry to
0: get into Yeah. I, I would think that the all the, the gunsmiths that I know, like you say, are the one man bands or maybe they've got an offsider and there is they're a small tall workshop doing repairs or very mm. boutiquey work. And that's quite different from a business that's employing like 15, 16 people and has facilities. Excuse me. That's there's a difference between a workshop and an actual engineering. A do plant or it's a it's a it's quite it is different um mm-hmm. and yeah i'm sure there's plenty of people can um potter away and do do the bits and pieces but it sounds like you had something quite bigger in mind right from the get-go
1: yeah i did you know that was the vision but it's it's i mean often a little bit embarrassed to go there when you're that age as well like you know, I, you, yeah. know you don't Hey, I I want I want to do this and I want all this gear and I want all this stuff and I want to design all this stuff and send it everywhere. It seems a little bit unrealistic, you know, to, to start shooting your mouth back then.
0: To be fair, as well, it's part of that the Kiwi culture as well that tall poppy yes. culture where You're very humble, and it's it's I to be blunt suffer from it as well. I'm I'm terrible at actually self promoting mm-hmm. or talking or talking that side of stuff up, but. Um, on the flip side I've often thought and observed with yourself and what you've done is that you you have to put yourself out there and you have to risk that to actually build something to that size otherwise you remain as that individual in the in the, the basement engineer room or something like that. To go bigger than that yeah you have to think bigger and you have to be able to kind of see that vision and, and, and go for it basically.
1: Yeah yeah you've got to give it a, a red hot go but I mean, when you're in your early 20s, you know, and and at this stage I was, um, I think I was about $2 million in debt, um, you know, acquiring um, plant and machinery and and gear trying to build this dream. And it's just like like the banks were just losing their minds. They were like, they just saw me as this time bomb, you know, high-risk industry, massive amount of debt, huge ideas, and no one thought it was realistic. No one thought, well, I mean, I thought it was realistic. Yeah. Uh, but no one else sort of thought it was realistic. So it was quite, it was quite um, challenging from that perspective. And, and I have these discussions with different people that I discuss business with um, around societal norms. And as soon as you start listening to everyone and doing what they say instead of trusting your gut and focusing on your vision... Uh, that's when you're doomed that's when you're doomed to failure you know um having that bit of grit having the guts to dig in and putting yourself out there like you said mm. um, you know you've just got to do it otherwise yeah you you, you won't
0: You'll I, never get I'm, I'm just thinking about how I phrase this but uh, as a 20 year old as well was there a certain amount of um ignorance of, of the potential, you know, I'm just going to go and do this and maybe I don't know the way, or you're not thinking about the worst things that could happen. And, and I wonder as people get older, they probably become more aware of that stuff. But when you're young, you, you kind of, this is, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this, which is, it's it's that wonder of youth. You haven't had those absolutely failures and experience to, to go, Oh, actually, maybe I'm not going to, maybe this isn't, maybe they are right. You know?
1: No, 100%. And, you know, and I, I, I talk, again, with various people. Albert Einstein's the classic. He did some incredible things, and, and they were, you know, a lot of his colleagues older than him were like, you can't do that. Yeah. Because here it is in the book, it says you can't do that. And he goes, oh, I never read that book.
0: Yeah, sorry, I didn't get around yeah. to reading it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and, you know and and, yeah so that that that
0: whenever whenever I'm worried I'm wearing the same hoodie for three days in a row I always think of Albert Einstein because apparently had a whole wardrobe just full of the exact same outfit because he's like I've got no time to think about what the hell I'm wearing I'm here to like uncover the mysteries of the universe I'm not trying to figure out what I'm wearing in the morning so often I'm just like "Ah, I don't really care it doesn't need to be a fashion show every day yeah dead
1: rule. Yeah, well, I was yeah.
0: saying today, I actually broke out one of the bright shirts because I've had no excuse to wear it. So I was like, all right, what the hell? It's, we're going online. I might as well wear something a little bit exciting.
1: Oh, I just come in a bloody old T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so
0: so just hmm. one step back when when because you mentioned the suppressors and i think suppressors are an interesting thing um in new zealand as well because of our um restrictions legislation or lack of it when it comes to suppressors compared to some other places in the world as well we've always to me seemed we spearhead and you guys have spearheaded the technology for suppressors and is that an accurate thing? You know, do we really have quite a strong design suppressor culture in New Zealand in regards to the products as well?
1: We certainly did. Um, I, can't, I can't put the exact figure on it. We we move so fast and we pivot so quickly, but yeah. let's say it was six or seven years ago. Um, our, our philosophy, our company's values, you know, um, have always been. I've always been operating by them, but only in the last sort of five years have we made them, you know, very public. We, you know, lead from the front, relentless innovation, and commitment to service and quality. But that that relentless innovation is that's I I live that to my core, you know, and I constantly innovate. That's where I work at my best, coming up with something really dumb, um, really hard, and then figuring out how to unpack the box. Um, so the suppressor stuff, yeah, we we thrashed suppressor design and innovation for years. Millions, I spent millions of dollars um, running the company on the bones of its ass because I literally just wanted to keep throwing resource into suppressor development, more and more and more. Um, that was like I said, five, six, seven years, whatever mm. it was, ago, and it was really good because the the cost. But there wasn't. The, 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 there was only, um, say, half a dozen suppressor manufacturers, and the cost of your suppressor reflected a figure that gave you the ability to have a wedge left over for development, yep. so people could keep developing and driving this product. So we did it for a long time. We had sound pressure. We've still got. We still got everything. Um, sound pressure. Um, you know, measuring gear, anechoic. Chambers, some of our suppressors. We made 150 different prototypes and never yeah. even released the product. Um, you know, and and it was really, really good, and it was really encouraging. And and you know, you had a lot of people that you do something, and then someone would have a look, and, and they'd catch up, and then you go, I'm going to go to the next step. And it was this 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 really good sort of almost um, decade of hard. Technological advancements in that field, but um, when the recession sort of got its mitts on us, and a lot of these, I think uh, it's sort of hard to put a, uh, my finger on it, but it sort of seems like a lot of these engineering sort of companies that uh, maybe their work dried right up or whatever it was, they went well, let's let's make these suppressors. They're selling for four, five hundred dollars or whatever. Let's do something like this. We'll take that design there, spin them up, sell them for however much money below, you know, current market value. Yeah. And it sort of just happened just like that. You know, there was, there was no... There was nothing left to play with. There was no margin left to play with. Well, I think, I, we i not done anything
0: Yeah, and then uh, I think then it Compounds as well, because you had the local guys... You're, you're right. Uh, I think it was a combination of other workers dried up. Also, probably someone in the machine shop had an interest in guns, so they figured, oh, well, mm. we can copy some designs and do my own suppressor. But then... I've also seen, I can think of a few examples where the design has been sent over to China somewhere else to manufacture it and come down very cheap or someone's ordered some suppressors off Alibaba basically as a design cop, you know. There's some very interesting, very close designs that have come through. But, of course, there's nothing of, there's none of the IP design, ongoing design pricing built into those. So guys just understandably, the consumer looks at this one and looks at this one, it's half the price, but they don't realise that part of the function of that that price, the one with that extra price is paying for that 150 versions that mm-hmm. didn't make it there and all that equipment and all that design that... Yeah, it doesn't directly make an income, but you have to put it into it to actually do it. I, I, I remember if I was in the plastic injection molding industry and we had the 3D printers and all the prototypes and the amount of stuff that was just left on the design room floor and prototypes that didn't work. Products would take a year sometimes to get there. But then we were in an industry that you had to sell them for like 50 cents a unit. So you, it was just a, it was because guys are bringing them in from overseas. They didn't yeah. fit the pipe. They were putting the fittings on because of tolerance issues, which is a separate issue. But, you know, guys are like, oh, it's half the price. I'm going to buy that. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So like you did, you then go, right, we have to pivot on to something else as well.
1: Um, yeah. Just to go back to what you were saying about the yeah. whole product overseas, bits and pieces like that, a friend of mine who also manufactures presses in New Zealand, he having a laugh one day and he said to me, hey, look at this. And he pulled up Alibaba. It was a CNC, uh, you know, a, a company advertising that they all make whatever you want, CNC products for dirt cheap. And um, they'd taken a picture off his website with his <laughs> watermark thing and put it on Alibaba, saying, "We can even make this." <laughs> and that was his product. Off his yeah. Web, you know, just ruthless. Just absolutely ruthless. So um, now you did right. Yeah, there was a bit of outsourcing there to, um, you know, to, to those sorts of places there.
0: And and it's hard because then that's the thing. So you pull that out of the market. So where is your motivation to do the the next? Is because the problem is that copycat process has also gotten quicker. So you don't. It's not like you have a year or two of being the leader and everyone needs to get your product to be to get the latest and greatest. The turnaround from someone grabbing one, copying the design and getting that to market to chase you has just shrunk so much. I would imagine, and it'd be the same for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, it had, I and mean, I think. Um, but even even that being said, the margins not not being there. If you took if you take one of our our products, uh, pull the core out like a, a Gen Five Stealth or something like that, um, you cannot manufacture that unless you've got really really good gear. You know, right. you can't do it. It's not a baffled suppressor that you can machine up on a lathe. Um, you know, it has massive amount of uh, machining cycles in it. Some of them are, you know, like a huge amount of asymmetry in it, so it's not like you can just sort of do some basic cuts and it's the same on the side. Absolute pain in the ass. So um, when you when you took the suppressor market, looked at the suppressor market and went, okay, the average value is now $350, bucks, let us say. Um, Ours is not the design to copy. So we sort of were right. protected from that perspective. Uh, we didn't get a lot of that copycat uh, sort of activity there but um, yeah, like you say our motivation to continually develop um, you know it was 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 gone you know we, we just you couldn't do it anymore which was a real shame because even to this day um, I still think there are there's some good gains to be had and I still really really enjoy it. I really enjoy it and I've actually got scribbles from you know the old midnight, wake up, hey, shit, this is a good idea, scribble it down, then have a look at it in the morning. I've got scribbles pinned to my notice board above my computer of, um, well, they're meant to resemble suppressors, um, <laughs> don't think it's been the best um, of things that I'd like to machine. Yeah. But the company can't, you know, you can't afford to keep throwing money at, you know, flog that dead horse, um, which yes. is a shame. Mm. Well, but yeah, yeah What well, like you're saying, there comes a point where you need to, understand that it's time to, um, pivot. And for me, like, as I mentioned earlier, having business in my blood and understanding a lot about how these things worked, it it gave me the foresight to see that this was on the horizon. So two years before the market sort of hit its all time low of the price war, um, I decided it, w- it was time for us to sort of take our next step and advance the, the overall um, strategy of the company forward. Yep. And that's when we started to look at the uh, barrels, manufacturing barrels. So effectively what we, what we needed to do was generate enough um, income from the, the company, which was basically a suppressor manufacturer, a custom gun maker, and a small amount of repair. Generate enough uh, enough income uh, to over the years to then um, develop our own line of firearms. That was the that was the big goal, um, and that, so the, the logical stage for us um, was the barrel. Was the barrel was going mm. to be the, the next component to look at because obviously you need a barrel to make firearm. It's definitely a helpful um, component.
0: Certainly helps getting the projectile in the right direction. having yep. a barrel on it. Yeah, yeah.
1: I oh, yeah. see eye to eye on that one. Yeah, so they need to go there, <laughs> okay. but. Um, we the barrel, with, but then you can also go. Well, there's a market for this pro- as a standalone product. We don't yeah. we don't need to manufacture the rest of the firearm. Um, we can make barrels, um, develop them to a standard that we're comfortable with, and sell them just as barrels. Um, we we can also be our own customer and consume barrels in our custom rifles. So, um, we got into the barrel side of the house, and um, we procured the gear, got the know-how, and you know, started producing these barrels, and, you know, right from the get-go, the the, the, the plan and how that all came together was just incredible. Um, I was attending a facility opening in the UK. They were The people that we were visiting were our distributor at the time for suppressors in the UK, and they invited us over as a guest for this Opening of their new massive store and um, warehousing and gunsmithing shop and all this cool stuff. And while I was over there, <clears throat> we ran into this. I ran into this guy through a couple of conversations that he was, um, look, I make barrels for our border a place called Border Barrels in Scotland. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm pretty well over the firearms industry and I want to retire. I'd love to um, move to New Zealand. Tell me about New Zealand, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll tell you a lot. Um, <laughs> you tell us about a good that. sales pitch yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah
1: so there was a big old um dialogue there and it went on and on and, and in the end we ended up uh bunging this guy in a courier bag and we imported him into oh. um new zealand him and his partner and the exchange was we assist him with the immigration side of the house for two years return to yep. service bus. Brilliant, just—I mean, timing and all that sort of stuff was just absolutely fantastic. So, um, we gained some really incredible barrel-making skills, um, which shortcut our development period down, mm-hmm. you know, you know, considerably. Um, and yeah, the barrels have been just pumping ever since. Um, in line with that too, it was very different and really useful from the perspective with the with the suppressors and exporting suppressors. Um, we have a, we had a certain number of distributors dotted around the world, but only very few because the way that we that New Zealand typically manufactures suppressors and some of the other places around the world, they're off like they're really, really different. Like we manufacture primarily a hunting suppressor for a bolt gun. Yeah. Where a lot of countries, like the States being the classic case, they build these things, uh, the suppressors specifically to be able to handle um, really high rates of semi-automatic yeah. or automatic fire. So the suppressors are very different. So the export market for them for suppressors is really limited. So we have these key distributors dotted around the place, fine. But then when it comes to making barrels, the the you know, sort of all bets are off. We can send barrels. Yeah, who doesn't want a stainless steel match grade barrel? What What country yeah. doesn't suit? Um, and you know, if they had an application everywhere, so we started to fire barrels around the place. Excuse the pun; that wasn't intended. Actually, um,
0: there's a lot of them in this
1: industry. They're great. I know. It's
0: good. <laughs> <It's good enough. laughs>
1: they roll off the tongue. Yeah. Um,
0: but well, yes, so it's, we, it's, sorry, it's a divert. But it's interesting how much of farms related terminology does creep into general english i, I do the firearms license going off half cocked and all these sort of things you know <laughs> locked yeah. and loaded there's actually a lot of it creeps into our, our common language for even non-firearms owners without probably them even being aware of it anyway sorry it was my yeah. yeah
1: my favorite my favorite one carry on off topic it's a very very quick sideline in the army instead of saying um wait and see a lot of guys use watch and shoot because that that was a typical term on the range. Watch and shoot. Uh, yeah, so I love that. Oh, I just going to watch and shoot and see how we go there. People are like, what are you talking about?
0: What are you on about? I'm just, I'm just waiting.
1: Going to wait and see. Yeah. So sorry, man. Not- if
0: you if you, anyone's ever seen any of my live shows, they know that we get off track pretty quickly. It always gets back where it mm. needs to be though. So that's that's fine. Oh, mm. sorry. Just one thing I was going to say. Just as a difference, I've always no, noticed again observed, and you're, it seems to be the same yeah overseas are different suppressors they also seem to have a real big thing for quick detachers rather than um threading on their suppressors they seem to like to have that that quick detach system so they can pull it off my thinking has always been that's just as much as anything because of some of the regulations and limitate the just sort of the culture they have of suppressors or does it just Mm. not especially america They just don't the the whole thread on direct connect doesn't seem to be as popular and I always hear about people always complaining about the quick detach stuff over state side, so, because unless there's another mechanism that has to be bang on for it to work.
1: Yeah, I mean we we did dabble with it. In fact, we actually developed a a really cool quick detach system. Hmm. Um, kind of like a you know, like you say, you would slide it over, it slid over about uh, I don't know, 30, 35, 40 mil. Yeah. And then you You'd, you'd turn the suppressor maybe 90 degrees in one direction. And what I did on the inside of the suppressor, we actually machined it so it would take an ER32 collet. So if you do, if anyone that's listening does a Google search on an ER32 collet, it's actually a machining collet that you use to clamp like a milling tool or a drill into a machine. But they're so precisely made and they, they, they you know, and they're a good length as well. Mm. Um looking at this thing as if we could work out a way that we could clamp and unclamp this collar, it would just bite on the end of a rifle barrel, just absolutely bang on. Um, So that's what we did. We built built this collar into a suppressor and you just twist the suppressor and it would um, compress the collar and you'd get this full 360 degree contact around your barrel over a length of, you know, sort of 35 Mm. long, So incredibly accurate. You could take it on and off as many times and, and, yeah. and it would half a second to put on and it would be bang on all the time. But um, the New Zealand market just didn't, wasn't, mm. there was no, there's no reason for it. We didn't even release no. it. It really did it for fun. You know?
0: Yeah. Oh, well, you got to be able to have some fun if you've got an engineering shop, uh, you know, next to your office, yeah. surely. <laughs>
1: like hundreds of collets kicking around. So we were just (laughs) milling up these collets and stuffing them in suppresses. It was wicked. So
0: so barrels, you you realise, and you're quite right. I mean, every gun has a barrel and, you know, it's interesting, there is different, I think when it comes to things like twist rates and stuff, it's interesting to see European and stateside, they have different thoughts regarding weights of projectiles, which leads to different twist rates and everything like that. But it's all pretty universal as a barrel as a fundamental part of any gun. So you decided, yeah, start making the barrels and getting them out, out there. One question is for that, because there is this perception and it's it's changed now because of social media and online. everyone's online and everything. So logically now it would be easier to get your product out overseas. When you started doing that, that wouldn't have existed. So was that just a case of a lot of trips over to, to shows and, and talking and meeting and getting stuff set up?
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that. And, you know, as you pointed out, I've never been particularly shy when it comes to getting myself out there because, you know, it, it just literally haven't had a choice. So yeah. um, picking up the phone, tons of time on Google, finding these different gunsmithing shops around the world in different places. Um, sending emails and just saying, "Hey, this is who we are. This is what we're about. We do some cool stuff. Come have a look. Let me know if you're interested." So, you could send out, you know, thirty emails to thirty gun shops around the place one afternoon. You wouldn't hear anything. Yeah, you know, so it was quite it was quite hard graft trying to pick up distributors, but you only need one or two in the right sort of locations, and you you, you know you'll do good business. You, you know, you can't you can't you can't have every single neighbouring gunsmith selling yeah. your products. Right, your barrel, yeah. They want to compete against each other and have the new thing. They can't all, otherwise you just end up in price wars. So you've got to be a bit careful of that. But So that's how it was done. We did a lot of um, a lot of work at Shop Show in Las Vegas with the barrels, with just, you know, before anything else. We, we spent a lot of time there with barrels. Um, yeah, a lot of time on phone and email and just chasing and just the good old-fashioned hard sell. Um, but yeah so, so what
0: sorry sorry just as a divert then I mean is that again is that something that you picked up through your parents like that that ability to just keep on pushing because as you said you are your your personality is quite big and out there and it's it's done you very well but with that obviously does come for lack of another a better term a lot of rejection because you need to push those mm. those numbers out there to that mm-hmm. so do you is that something you just developed? Is it a thick skin? Is it just knowing your your goals so clearly? Was it something that you were sort of taught how to deal with that? Because it's something I struggle with sometimes. It's you know, you you're making those calls, you're contacting those people, and after a while. You, it all kind of just starts getting into a bit of a, 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 a grind because you're like, all right, somebody's going to say, and you, you kind of, I know, I know instinctively you do that certain numbers, only one out of those 30 people need to say yes for it to actually succeed. But that 29 others still is, is plays havoc with me. So is, this, is it just, do you think that's just personality that you have that you just push through that? Is it something you're intentionally aware of and manage?
1: That's, yeah. Massive topic.
0: <laughs> I, I know it is. Yeah, but, <laughs> but
1: um, like, so my dad was like the most gifted salesman. You know, like he can, he could level with people. He's real straight shooter. He can speak. He could speak technically to the product. Um, fantastic communicator. He knows. He always knew how to um, move the direction around and 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 you know achieve that outcome and make the person on the other end of the phone understand that what it is we're trying to get to you is something that's actually going to add value you know as much as it we're not we don't want to let you go because we're trying to say hey if you just listen you know this is actually something that's good for you this is a neutral um exchange that we're doing here this is yeah. not a one-sided thing so he was able to put people and make people um feel like that very quick and so i inherited a massive amount of that from him not knowing any of this back then consciously uh, yeah yeah they were just
0: modeled for you basically
1: yeah, yeah yeah it's only more in the more recent years after attending um some really really amazing business development uh, groups and courses that I can sort of that I start to understand, mm. you know, about more about myself, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough one from the rejection side of the house. How I deal with that personally, and and everyone is is so different, and, and, and what works for me, and in many instances or many cases, won't work for another person. But it's quite simple for me because I'm a I'm a I'm, I'm a really um, futuristic person that the term is futuristic. I, I, I'm always focusing on the, my big vision. So I'm always living, um, never living in the moment, always living five to 10 yep. years out. So for me to, um, experience a case of projection, a sales case of projection, as soon as I hang up that phone, my brain just goes back. Hey man, it's going to be so cool when you've got that new CNC gotcha. machine and that big facility, So always keeping that big picture image in my mind because that's the thing that that's that's, that's what's actually important, Yeah, you know, what I'm trying to achieve for me and for my overall family, including all my stakeholders. That's what's actually important. So when you think about it in perspective like that, this company says they don't want to stock my barrels. It's really irrelevant. Mm. So why am I getting concerned? Yeah. be concerned so i won't be concerned that's how i would typically deal that's how i typically deal with rejection Mm. and i'm not saying that i'm i can turn it off and i and it's not easy Um, there are a lot of a lot of things in the industry that i that are hard to deal with and challenging to deal with and i don't and i can't deal with them just like that so um, it's not an easy it's not a skill that i have that i can just do all the time it's certainly not easy here
0: Well, it's we will get back to the uh, the barrels, I promise you. But it's it's something I've noticed with uh, because I think Hardee's and yourself has been the innovator. I have also seen backlash against you because of that. Mm. Almost because you're doing something new, you're trying something new, you're bringing something new to product. Well, obviously there's going to be some um, bumps along the way because if you just did the tried and tested like everyone else has done, well, why would anyone care? It would just be a, a, a price point thing. or Yeah, same as everyone else's. But, yeah, you bring new stuff to the market, and as a result, I can see occasionally there's been a bit of um, a pushback from that because it's like, well, who, well, who is this Dan? What, is, what, what makes him think that he can be the guy ahead of it? But then I stop and I observe and go, well, somebody has to be because yeah. if no one... Is then there is no innovation with it. And I guess that's that balance of then maybe also accepting, well, as a result of that, if I if I'm going to be trying new stuff logically, I have to have some failures along the way. And I have to have some people going, that's not how we do it along the way. But then five years later, everyone looks back and goes, Why weren't we always doing it? Of course we do it that way. Of course, it's now it just becomes yeah, more an observation rather than a question, I suppose.
1: But um, well, I can speak to that observation because, yeah. Yeah, in relation to what we were saying about just turning, being able to turn off the, uh, the more challenging sales. Yeah. So, like I said, I can turn that off quite well. But when it something that I really, really struggle with is when it's something that it's like my heart and soul. These these things that the company produces, they're my designs. I've come up with these ridiculous ideas. It's my yeah. idea to put this into you know to, to build these things or go down this path and when things don't go right because like you said your experience bumps along the, the way yeah yeah. i don't care if you're apple or your toyota or your hardy rifle engineering yeah you, yeah your you experience bumps along the way yeah um that 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 hits me really really hard because for me and it always comes back to the same thing though it's like i've, I've um i've let my team down because it, this was my thing my idea and I haven't done my part right. So that's one thing that I really, really struggle to, um, mm. to, to shape. But that's that, that that's, a, that's a real tough one. But, again, I try and, you know, think about sort of the thing that you said. Look, someone's got to be out there pushing these boundaries because, you know, there is no one else doing this sort of stuff in New Zealand, especially from the firearm side. Not, not like what we're doing. Um, and why not? And why hasn't it done before? And why isn't New Zealand known for producing world-class firearms? There's countries that are the similar same, you know, similar sort of size to us, similar amounts of technology available to them. They have amazing generational reputations for firearm ingenuity and quality. So why haven't we done? when well, we do it now.
0: Well, and I think the, the key to also to to point out as well you're doing it at scale because there's you know there is individuals where there's one or two unit in the handcraft and everything but you're also doing it at a point where maybe not mass compared to say savage remington or anything like that but certainly where it's it's no i know i really which is lovely but but you're yeah it's it's it is at scale it's not just oops sorry it's not just one or two rifles a year it is Mm. a significant amount around new zealand and actually overseas as well so there's also that difference as well because you could make one rifle and be perfectly handcrafted hundred thousand dollar rifle that's one thing but um yeah, you're you're sitting in a you're sitting in a different space again from that anyway. So,
1: yeah, and and the, the way that the company is d- designed and the way that we develop and build the foundations of the company is that that scalability that you're talking about needs to mm. be always in a position of sort of like a going concern. Yeah. If I get by a bus on the way to work tomorrow, the company has to still operate. You know, it cannot be some bloke with all these tricks and tips who can do this one job it has to be everything that we do has to be procedurized everyone know needs to know exactly what it is they need to achieve so that the next guy can achieve his but the next guy can can achieve his but and this product will keep flowing it's very very irresponsible of a company director to not to not support his yeah overarching stakeholders, the staff, our suppliers, our customers. You know, that that's that's not how I operate, and that's not how we will ever do it. It has to be able to keep going without me, and it can.
0: But I think that's the thing. A lot of the smaller businesses, as they grow and scale, and the company I was involved with for a long time was that their case They'd grown to the point they had the engineers and they had all the guys down the back in the tool shop, and one day we kind of all sat back and went, yeah, if that guy gets flattened tomorrow by a truck, all the company's IP is in his head and only in his head at this point in time. So we need to get that out of his head very quickly and get it down. And it was explaining to him, it's like, look, I'm not we're not trying to nickel your IDs and everything, but the, the reality is, is we need them out so that if things change for better, worse, or whatever it is, that yeah, the company needs to carry on because it's not just yourself you're you're supporting anymore. It's and it's not just you and a partner, it suddenly becomes two people, five people, ten people. 15, 16, 50, whatever it might be. It, it has to carry on without the, the founder um, actually being there, I suppose, is the goal in some ways.
1: Yeah, and and the issue with that is cost.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you
1: yeah. Know, the developer, I, I I do a lot of, I'm involved in a lot of different groups and talk to a lot of different people about business because a lot of people find my story and the way that I do things Um it has value for me to pass this sort of stuff on. And when I do these discussions, we just we talk about um, a business just like it's a house because, mm. you know, you cannot build your mansion on a couple of posts stuffed into the sand on the, at the beach. You, you, the, and a business is exactly the same. The foundations of a business need to be that to support the size and the vision of of the business, but it's very very hard to, to do that when so many people go into business and they don't actually have a clear vision. They don't know what it is why they're actually in business. Yeah, and I want like, oh, to make money. I want the lifestyle. Well, what does the company look like in ten years? Because I can't help you to build the foundations of your company if you can't even tell me what it is that you want. Um, but with that, with a larger company that can support itself and can go on if something bad was to happen to a, to a, a particular member, a huge amount of cost, you know, a huge amount of running expenses, overheads, you know, come, come with that. So scalability, um, people often underestimate the cost of scalability, you know, having, being, having to scale. Um, I make 10 rifles a year. What would it take? What, what would it cost to make a hundred rifles? Yeah, oh, ten mm. times that. No, it's considerably more, considerably. Yeah. So there are a lot of a lot of challenges from, from that perspective.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, I've been involved with a company that went from fifteen people to about fifty when I left over a period of, of years, and and yeah, it's not like the profit is exponential to it because there's all these like my role I was basically your classic middle manager. I was the operation so I was there recording policy creating policy process writing the operations manual well smaller company that's not a role or an expense that they necessarily think about but Mm. it was my full time you were paying somebody full time just to document stuff and there's a cost associated with it and the training that goes with it and the time you know so yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I think people think, oh, the business, yeah, ten times bigger business just makes ten times the money. It's like, no, it's not actually that case. And it's, there's a fine art between this, these massive companies that have so much admin and and logistics and stuff going on versus a company that's running running quite slickly and efficiently, without all that you know, without all that extra fat that can develop on these companies as they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you end up with somebody doing a job and you're like, what the hell does that person even actually do? We don't really know. We've got a department that yeah. does something these days and, you know, his salaries there, but what the hell is actually, what are they contributing? You know, so you see big companies and they become lethargic from from that as well, you know. So, well,
1: thankfully, we're not at the, the, the no. stage where <laughs> we need uh, a full-time employee and cultural sensitivity or something like that. We're not at that stage yet it may come who knows
0: hey you know not a bad place to be if there is actually that that need for it anyway Mm. so um yeah you were knocking on doors you were getting barrels overseas um at that point were you was the carbon after the barrels or did you kind of get into the barrels going carbon is something that we want to be doing as well because i would suggest a lot of people know hardy because of the the carbon barrels you kind of really got that going in new zealand as well and introduced this you were sort of on that front of the wave of now carbon's freaking everywhere, but yeah, yeah, it yeah, wasn't yeah, always
1: yeah. the case. Yeah, no, it wasn't. But you get, I remember, and there has been a massive paradigm shift where you get a, a client say, the carbon, the carbon barrel, why would I want that? Um, is it going to fall off? Um, you mm. know, do this and all these you get all these sorts of questions around oh durability what's it like if i bashed on a rock is it going to unravel you used to get all these questions and we don't hear them at all anymore you know because a carbon wrapped barrel is such a, a typical thing it's a it's mm. a the decision to go carbon or not is often made by the end user based oh, on very research it doesn't take a lot of out yeah,
0: so much mm. i was thinking I was just as you were saying that do you think mm-hmm. it's a case of a more educated consumer or more the fact that mm. it's just accepted because that I think some people getting into some people getting into a barrel they don't necessarily know more about how a carbon barrel would be made or anything but it's just a lot more acceptable whereas previously that question is it, if I am i going to like hit it and the whole thing will just unravel I don't know whether just <laughs> yeah, yeah, unwind or something the like that on
1: the end of your gun yeah yeah so yeah uh,
0: yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just pondering whether it's because I, I suppose guys, because there's always guys getting into it. It's not like they're necessarily going to know any more about barrels and those people back then, but there's just more of them about that it's just more yeah. acceptable. It's just like, oh, well, why would you ask I- a question? It's not a concern.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's word of mouth. I mean, if, you, if you're into your shooting um, and, and you're relatively active shooter, chances are you know a guy with a carbon barrel. Yeah. You know? Um and, yeah, so I think it's just a bit of a word-of-mouth mm. type scenario, the whole carbon situation. It's gen- generally considered a, a good a good thing. Um, and it's been around long enough now. That's it. But getting back to your question, the, the carbon barrels and the barrels, more or less at the exact same time. Yeah, okay. So... When we started to go down the barrel manufacturing really early on, really early on, um, before we acquired plant or anything, um, we had a a friend from within the industry at that time um, dipping his toes in to the carbon wrapped market and a few other bits and pieces. And it was kind of, again, just really good timing where we said, look, this is what we want to do And he goes, well, yeah, well, we can wrap them. So we're like, bingo. Okay, so let's go down this track. But it was really good once we realized that we had a supply channel for the carbon wrapping side of the house. When it came to developing the barrels, having the carbon wrapped side of the house in mind gave us massive advantages during the developmental stage because whenever you manufacture a barrel, you introduce stress introduce stress into it and if you've got a barrel with stress in it um, it's quite easy to recognize in a lot of instances because the groups walk over say the first six rounds you end up with a big string from bottom right to top left over sure. you know and that that's generally an indicator of stress so there's lots of different ways to um, sort of combat stress if for you know and, and the, the most common one is a stress relieving heat related process but as you stress relieve a barrel you it's it's a a process of heating and cooling you also change the hardness characteristics of a of of the barrel so with your typical stainless steels 416R they, they operate as far as being a gun barrel anywhere between sort of 23 to 30 Rockwell is fine As soon as you go below that sort of 23 figure, uh, two things happen. First, and most importantly, there's no safety concerns. So that's good. So, as far as uh, someone who is going to develop a barrel, if you were to do one that, if you were to manufacture one that was softer than 23 Rockwell, you can do so with no issue. However, they wear out sooner. Obviously, they're softer. Mm -hmm. But more interestingly, the um, I've got to be really careful that I don't go really nerd out on stainless steel. But stainless steel is- We can, we can probably
0: it. do a whole episode and just let you go for yeah, yeah. Maybe well, that's, that's probably the way to do it. But yeah, metal, it's, it's metal metal always
1: up. Yeah, but stainless, stainless steel is a, is a term, but there's, there, what most people don't understand is that there is stainless steel and then there's true stainless. So true stainless will not rust. Where gotcha. Stainless steel as a brand will rust. It just has a
0: massive amount of rust resistance. It, in it. It's a weird. T- we used to. I was plumbing industry. We did drainage stainless steel drainage grates, and we always used to tell people it's stain less. It, it's not yeah. stain free because they're putting no them stain in their, no steel. Yeah, it's no yeah. stain. It's yeah, yeah because yeah, people yeah. are putting them in their in their bathrooms, never doing any maintenance or anything, and going it's rusting. What was actually kind of horrible is was it wasn't always rust. Sometimes it was actually just like scum because they'd never clean this shit, and you're just like. Hate to break it to yeah. you but that's something <laughs> else again that's that's yeah, turning that brown that's your
1: that's, problem
0: yeah well but yeah. our solution was was starting to include um cleaning kits and uh free bar of soap not for the um, not actually for the uh the drain we just got a pile of soap made up with our company stamp Again, a group of people sitting around going, well, what can we kind of do to address a problem and have a bit of fun at the same time and so everyone got a free cleaning kit with it because we need to educate people because we were getting complaints back that our grates were rusty. So we're like, well... We can either call them an idiot because they don't understand how stainless works, or we go, all right, let's be proactive and include cleaning, information, educate, and then, yeah, we don't get... Well, we didn't get those questions anymore. Sorry, diversion. Yeah. Anyway.
1: But, yeah, you're right, though. You're right. Anyway, we understand that... We understand the principles of stainless steel. The The grades that you can use for making um, barrels are not the true stainless. The true stainless grade okay. There's only... One or two grades, and it's typically used for um, really, you know, different things. Not remotely suitable for making a barrel, due to all sorts of reasons. We won't go into, um, you know, what they what they make the uh, the steel alloy with is not suitable. So anyway, the, the okay. grades that you can make uh, gun barrels out of stain less, not true stains. So during the stress relieving process, as soon as you drop below twenty two Rockwell. It's still safe to shoot, wears out a little sooner, but more concerning is that the corrosion resistance qualities that the barrel had disappear. Okay. Sort of like an unusual side effect that most people weren't really aware of. So you might as well have a chrome molly barrel that's not blued at that stage. So therein lies an issue. Another another way you can combat stress in a barrel is to have a thicker barrel because it's not going to heat up the same. What we need is a barrel that, as far as stress is concerned, is dead. It's completely dead. It has no energy or stress. It's completely dead because these things are going to be turned down as thin as we can safely make them to then wrap carbon around them to make them light. So going through the barrel development process, knowing that we're going to do carbon wrap barrels, was useful because we knew how far we had to push that stress-related or or dead how how much we needed to deaden the barrel. So what we did is we tested steel's a lot of different um, manufacturers. So as much as the steel is the same grade, it has chemical composition um, tolerances. each of the um materials that go into the stainless alloy and again how it's how it's made from the mill different quality so on so on so on anyway we tested um steels from the states we tested steels from italy which were both good steels and we ended up settling on a steel from germany and I know that everyone says Germans make the, um, the best quality or basically everything, um, and you know what? We, we import all anything and everything that requires to be at the top end. We've tested different materials, and it
0: always works all, out. It all seems to work and that way. It's always,
1: and we're always in the steels, and um, you know, different steel alloys and aluminium alloys from Germany. Um, and the stainless steel was, was no, was no different. And we, we tested, we tested quite a few. Um, and it was really interesting because the, the quality of the steel and like I say the chemicals and all this, we found the steel from Germany. We could make it completely dead, completely dead. So that ticks the big box. Um, the next thing was the hardness, but even though we we got it completely dead, which lowers the hardness, the more dead you want it, the hardness stayed at a really, really good level. So that we were amazed. It's considerably, the barrels are considerably harder than some of the other manufacturers out there with less stress. So that was really interesting. And thirdly, which we found, which was just an absolute happy side effect, is that the barrels, for whatever reason, drill straighter with the steel, which is purely a quality... Purely a quality thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if we weren't aware that we were going to go down this carbon wrapping scenario, we basically would have just stuck with the first steel that we got our grubby mitts on, which was um, Italian steel, good steel, um, and that's how we how we would have done it. And then, can you imagine trying to develop the carbon? <laughs> all the the challenges we would have run into doing it um, retrospectively. So, um, like I say, timing was good timing was yeah.
0: very well you're, you're back to also that mm-hmm. analogy of having uh the solid foundations for whatever you're building on top of it and and knowing you were going to build on top of it made you stop and slow down and go well these foundations do need to be solid mm. um as a result it makes just the non-wrapped barrels better and it also sets you up for more success with the carbon wrap ones as well
1: yeah yeah so um yeah all, all in all it, it worked out very, very well. And um, when we released our barrels, we released the carbon-wrapped and the stainless pretty much at the same time, you know, with a very short time frame. From, from memory, I think it was like four months later we released mm. carbon-wrapped barrels, which is nothing, yeah. um, you know, for an entire different product line.
0: Well, um, I, I mean, myself included, I imagine a lot of people would know Hardy for their carbon wrap barrels probably before they knew them for barrels because it was the carbon wrap barrels that got the... Look, the, the, the,
1: look at I mean, me factor.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> look, the look at me factor, and it's just like, holy hell, what, what's going on? And, and timing-wise, even overseas, there weren't a lot of options either to it. Um, now, in the last couple of years, it's become more and more common that you're seeing more and more more versions of the carbon wrap barrel. But at the time, there was you, and I can think of one other manufacturer, and that's pretty close to it. I mean, I'm sure there was others doing it, but not at any, again, that scale or recognition of it.
1: So, yeah. yeah which get, is quite get, cool, because then wrong.
0: little old New Zealand, again, is kind of leading the charge for these, these new technologies. Um, mm. Thanks to you
1: guys. Yeah, thanks to us and, and you know, and with, with the, the, the companies that we partner with as well. I mean, obviously yeah. our carbon fibre work as a whole for New Zealand is just absolute world-leading, you know. We've got some absolutely, some really, really talented carbon fibre guys here um, dotted all around the country. Um, and it was having that intelligence in the community and the guys that we were using at the time, being able to pull from that community and apply that industry to our industry, yep. which gave us such a good product. So it just you know, it, it does go back to ultimately, it goes back to um, you know Kiwis being very innovative people and just having two innovative industries crossing over um how, I, how
0: was uh, the reception from those other industries because uh, uh, when it, again when it came down to firearms was it just for them another job or was there a moment of what or do they just because uh, sometimes i think the engineering is almost a, more of a common language that whether it's yeah. it's firearms you know there's we're building precision equipment and and in some ways firearms are a great expression of that because everything needs to be engineered well to, to get that result out of it um i tell a story i remember i was, I, was at, I had a friend of mine who needed me to check out the concentricity of some of his rounds so i took my little gauge out and he's a um, barista so he's making me a coffee I, I i looked for a while what the hell dropped dropped it out and had a couple of rounds and i'm measuring concentricity of rounds in a cafe in the middle of uh, ponsonby in auckland all right yeah <laughs> and i thought about it i thought about it and, and this is the way my brain works i'm like yeah legally all good no guns around everything's sweet as how's this, let's see what actually happens. And I had a guy in a suit, order a coffee, come over and like, what are you doing? Those were a bully. Yeah, go, what are you doing? And I explained that I was measuring concentricity and looking for, you know, was, was it seated right and everything, how it impacts. And of course, this guy worked for an engineering company. So he's like, I, that is all very, very interesting. Thank you very much. And I don't necessarily think he went and got his firearms license, but again, it was just the buy-in was really quick because it's engineering and you explain it and it's there's more to it than people really anyway so um yeah were they they kind of looking enjoyed these other projects just different application of their technologies
1: yeah i think definitely but it's it's hard to sort of put you put my brain back there yeah yeah. i think that it was to them a bit of fun um and and something cool but far as a commercial opportunity, I don't think it was taken particularly seriously yeah. um, and that's often, often the case in this industry um, when, when I introduce myself to someone outside of the industry um, I'm still thought of as just a dude hanging out in his garage with a couple yeah. of files that's, you know, that's sort of the image that most people conjure up so they don't see it as something that's particularly, um, yeah, that has a, that had a particularly large commercial um, application back then. Obviously, you know, things have changed considerably since then, and now it's, um, you know, we would sell considerably, considerably more carbon wrap barrels than we would steal. Hmm. Um, but getting back to what we were saying, um, so we've released the barrels, carbon and stainless, and then we were door knocking with these things, and... The carbon really helped get us in the door. Part of the story we were telling was the, like I just said, the two um, innovative industries pooling Mm. um, to provide one really top end product. And as a result of the sales side of the Uh, the big sales pushed to all these different places and this product that was, as we mentioned way ages ago, a product that was a lot more applicable to these varying markets. We were able to push the Hardy brand into a lot, a lot had a lot more reach. We pushed it a lot further. So we got a fantastic distributor in Canada, for example, those guys are great. And, um, you know all sorts of other places. We ended up getting product into actually no, I won't say that one. Uh, <laughs> lots of places.
0: <laughs> lots of places. There's a lot of lots pins of, of, on
1: your map. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are. There, there are. Um, Got to be a bit careful. I don't want to upset someone. Um, yeah. and, and and that was that was really good. And we looked at this our distribution network, and we saw our distribution network grow. And you start to go well. This is the, this is this hard work that you're putting in now and building this distribution network for this product, which is definitely not our big picture end game, Mm. but all this work is all these products that we develop and these rifle systems that we develop later on, we will push this through this existing network. So getting out there, rubbing shoulders, developing these relationships, managing these relationships, um, talking the talk, taking clients out for dinner, all that sort of stuff. It was all part of a much, much bigger picture for the company. So it all ended itself really well. And the the carbon, just getting back to the carbon side of it, like you pointed out, there were very few carbon-wrapped barrel producers back then. So it gave us a really good foot in the door, uh, a really good point of difference, especially in Europe. Like in Europe, we just, you know there'd be there'd be more countries that we don't uh, that we there'll be less countries that we don't distribute you know what i mean I you know, know germany Italy. The, the, the list just goes on we're, we're, we're putting our product into countries that are known for producing the world's best version of the same product in a lot of instances um like italy is the classic case when people talk Italy and firearms, it's known for some of the absolute premier gear, mostly shotguns, people mostly think shotguns, but rifles too. The volume of barrels that we send to Italy is huge, (laughs) really, really good um, market for us. Um, Yeah, and that would would, would probably about do it for, for the barrel side of the house.
0: Yeah, well, it's an interesting observation of that 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 gives you the end to the distributors that then time-wise years or the time later when you have the rifles and the firearm systems that you've already got those relationships to it rather than... Because mm. it's the same, there's, there's two ways you do it. You can either build your customer base and find other products to sell to your customer base that you've established, or you can create new products and then try and figure out who you're going to sell them to. And it's always seemed a lot easier to actually just find other products that the customers you already have want to buy as well and bring that to them rather than going, well, here's a new product. Now we're going to find a new market for it. Um,
1: yeah. And that's, that's, that's the sort of stuff that we discuss regularly. Like we have a senior leadership um, team meeting every month without our, our top four guys, myself included in the, in the, in the team and they still include you Dan that's nice of them (laughs) I'm not not really allowed to speak to customers so much anymore but um (laughs) but I am allowed in the odd, the occasional of my own meeting um (laughs) but um you know that's that that's what we, we, we talk about and ask the question you know what's trending what's going on out there who's saying what who's asking what question you know yeah you Know and how many times have we been asked, oh, do you guys make a such and such? You know, or I've seen this in the States, can you guys do this? You know, and, and so always having your finger on that that pulse is um yeah, vitally Im- Im- important. And and I do not need an excuse. You know, Ian says, Oh, I've had three blokes ask me for this, can you guys develop a version of this? I am just, yeah, let's <laughs> yes. yeah, let me add it. Um, so we're we'll always tinkering. like you say when you came through pro- projects everywhere. Mm. There's always something that we're we're always working on, and we're thankful that um, we have the client base that we that we do have, and we have the ability to keep pushing forward. I'd go mad if I couldn't um, tinker and start working on the next biggest. Baddest thing, um, so yeah, good. Well,
0: that's 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 a balance of also having those production items that you can do numbers of and sell volume mm. essentially and have that income that then enables you to have these pet projects that may then turn into volume items later on as well. Mm. Um, and it's it's kind of cool to see again, see that nice balance between the two of uh, you know, it can't all be custom stuff. And if it's all just numbers, production run, production run, that gets very boring very quickly. So it's nice to have a balance of the two. And that's because the other thing which people don't—it's those those custom things and those fun things that kind of keep the culture and the crew onto it. Absolutely. But a lot of the cool marketing yeah. stuff and the cool the just the cool juice of the company comes out of that stuff. And then you see another version when it gets a bit more fine becomes a release product, you know. But you've got to have those fun products to actually get to that point anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, mm. dead right. And it's it's a real tough one in, in New Zealand when I, again, I, I, I talk to these different um, business groups and different companies about they wanting to do this or, or someone who wants to start something from scratch. And we talk about pricing and, and they always say, oh, look, I want to be the cheapest. <laughs> My bad. This warehouse, I call it the warehouse mentality you yeah. know, in New Zealand. This way, in a lot of instances, the warehouse mentality, you buy the cheapest, it's like so diabolically, diabolically narrow-minded it does no one any favours generating this false economy. You know, if, if these guys are saying we want to start a company with this new innovative product, we want it to be the cheapest or whatever it is, you can't survive like that. You can't do it. Your company cannot grow. You cannot. You do not have money to innovate. You're doing your consumers a disservice mm-hmm. by undercharging them you need to grow you know because well, there's some but, amazing thinkers with new zealand has a lot of amazing innovative thinkers
0: yeah but without I, the- I think the- i think the, the the cheapest possible business model though is more just finding the cheapest possible it's it's drop shipping is really it seems to be where mm-hmm. that's successful because all you want to be is the small little marketing thing just bringing it to market, but you're right you've got no money to invest in design or plant or anything like that it's just like where can I get to make it cheaper and it won't be locally it'll be somewhere where they're doing it masses because they can do the numbers thing and then how can I get it as cheap to make and everything but that's you're right that's not the it's not a it's not a place to get innovation out of uh, mm. it's just a place to be constantly chasing a cheaper cheaper lower cheaper product you know and it's multiple it's not the firearms industry it's all industries I've, I've seen it happen in the pro audio industry um where yeah i mean if, if 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 there's no money there you don't get to do the fun stuff and the consumer or the customer actually gets to enjoy the fun stuff as well it's sort it, of, it, it, yeah so
1: yeah no it, it is and then and then you know someone else comes up with it, a different country well, you know yeah. <laughs> i had that idea i was gonna do that you know well, why didn't you wow well, i just couldn't afford it i couldn't afford to do it yeah well, who's who's fault's that man you know you are giving your gear away you know it's it's a real shame because then what could have been a new zealand locally produced product becomes another import mm. so yeah. it's a tough one
0: oh <laughs> good all right so suppress we've got suppressors we've got barrels yeah, <laughs> we've covered so the, the, we've we've a lot of the history part of it, and now we're up to the um, we're getting close to the juicy stuff. Or well, where? Uh, I don't know. I suppose uh, maybe we can lead on to where the, the next episode will start. And I'll, I'll I'll start with this question: Have you got to where you're actually we're planning on going yet, or is there quite a lot to go? Oh man, <laughs> I know, that's a lady. There you go.
1: <laughs> um, not even close. Yeah, not even close. Um, we, I have accomplished some of the goals that I have set for myself um, and I am comfortable with how things are moving. However, you know, I'm only 37, I think. I think I'm 37. Um, I've got so much more to give to the community and so many more ridiculous ideas um, it, it, yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it will ever stop. But, I, but to, to answer your question more directly,
0: mm.
1: yes, we have complete second generations of firearms to, that will be developed in the future, yeah. um, predetermined. I mean, um, so yeah, we're, we're not there. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll never be there.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well good. All right. So um yeah, man. I mean, I think time-wise we've been well, we've been yarning for over an hour now, which is quite good. It's a nice, nice hunk. I reckon next one, obviously, we're gonna be talking the guns because we've got the hybrid and now we've got the project X as well, which I think you mentioned to me initially. Man, I don't know, yeah, maybe a year, maybe ago or something. Hmm. I'm not sure. Um, which that's come out now as well. So um yeah, I I suggest we uh we tie ho here for the moment and then um reconvene again shortly and we can have a uh round two for the gun side of things. What do you reckon?
1: Yeah, it'd be good to get some feedback. Is there too much rambling? We're going into <laughs> <laughs> nerding out on some things that we
0: shouldn't. Yeah, it's the it's the <laughs> beauty of podcasts. Say eh? it's what I love about them, or the, the long form format is that you know when we first met at or what we had that first talk at the the um, shot expo, it was like right, there's gonna we're gonna have 5, 10, maybe fifteen minutes. We've got other people lining up. I was kind of just trying to work in with other people as well but the ability to just sit down and, and listen and listen to your thoughts for a longer period of time is awesome. And I don't know, it's what people want. I think they want that insight and they just want a little bit more, more stuff to kind of absorb. So yeah, man, I pre- appreciate your time, especially considering you've, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, middle of lockdown. You've just moved. You've got a business to try and run in level three now as well. So um, it's that it.
1: what's that? <laughs> i said good stuff mate i'll do it in my sleep it's good ah excellent. always never never want to shy from a challenge that's for sure <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome dan all right cool so thank you very much for that and uh yeah everyone listening in you can expect the next uh next installment uh, in, in, in uh, a short course of time as well brilliant so cool.
1: thank well, anyway, thanks for that mate it's been really really good fun